insofar as I know, we'll be spending a while together now. At some point, we'll break for tea, and then we'll have a closing. And I personally haven't structured the afternoon much, so that we can unfold in whatever way we need to, as, as, a, as a group together. We certainly will be doing, I expect, a few more of those reflections. In beginning, though, I would like to just tell a couple more stories. You know, this time after lunch is always a little difficult. I don't know how the sloth and topper is doing, but <laughs> after lunch, we usually all, 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 all get a visit, you know. So maybe a few stories might be a good idea first. And these are both stories about women. Um, one about my friend Anna, who died a couple of weeks ago, and I certainly knew Anna well. But first I'd like to tell a story of another woman. Her name was Kisa Gotami, and I didn't know her. She, she lived uh, the time of the Buddha. And her, her story is a tragic one and also a very telling one. So, at the time of the Buddha, Kisa Gautami married as a young woman and she married into a family that didn't altogether approve of her. So her life was quite difficult and she, she stayed with her husband's parents and they tolerated her, but they weren't very kind to her until she had a child. She had a young boy and that was the moment when the circumstances changed. Everybody was a lot kinder to her. They were much more appreciative of her. It's a rather sad story also, of course. And um, this young boy was perfect and beautiful in every way and healthy and robust. And when he started to run around, he ran around madly. And he was a delight of his mother and father and his, his uh, grandparents and the, and, and the whole family. Well, one day he was out playing and he suddenly fell ill and he died. And she was distraught, understandably. She was, of course, distraught because her child had died, but in some ways the, the prevailing tone of the family reverted to what it was before the young boy was born. So in her sadness and in her grief, holding the body of her child, she went to the Buddha and she said to him, please, 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 I will do anything in the world, but please bring my child back to life. And apparently he reflected for a moment and he said to her, of course I will do that. I only have one favor to ask of you. And she said, tell me, I'll do it. And he said, what I'd like you to do is I'd like you to go down to the village and I'd like you to bring me a single mustard seed from that house where nobody has died, that house where there's been no death. And she said, oh great, and holding the child, she ran off down to the village, she went to the first house, and she said, do you have any mustard seed? And they said, of course we do. She said, well, would you give me one? And they gave her a mustard seed, and she said, oh yes, and um, has anybody died in your family? And the woman in, in, in the first home said, well, Actually, yes, my mother died uh, 
last year. Uh, yeah, and so she, she left and she went to the next house and repeated the same thing. And there she was told that a cousin and an uncle had died a couple of years earlier. And of course she went from household to household, desperately looking for that home where nobody had died. And after many days of this endeavor and a lot of heartache and a lot of reflection and exhaustion and frustration, always holding the body of her child to her breast, she eventually sat down one day, utterly exhausted and frustrated. And what the texts say she, she said was, no village lore is this, and no city lore either. No lore for this clan or for that clan alone. For the whole world, and even for the gods in heaven, this is the law. All is impermanent. And it said that in that moment she realized the futility of that endeavor, and her mind kind of opened into an acceptance, grief-stricken as she was, that what had happened was in the scheme and the order of things. And it's a story that's told often in the scriptures as by way of, of um, underscoring the importance of coming to some sort of accommodation with uh, impermanence. When she went to the Buddha, she said to him, Venerable One, as everybody referred to him, I've seen that all things that are born will surely die. Children, grandmothers, sheep, trees, perhaps even the stars above. Nothing is exempt. I have let go and accepted the death of my child. Now those of you that are familiar with Buddhist stories know that they don't end and she lived happily ever after. <laughs> but there is a way that they always end, and this one ended in exactly that way, which was that she shaved her head and she ordained as a nun and spent the rest of her life uh, in a monastery. And that was the happier ending to the story of Gautami. The story of Anna is actually one that I've not told before, so uh, I'm a little nervous, and but I want to tell it. About five years ago, I moved into an apartment building in Amherst, and I went back to South Africa, actually, uh, to be with my mother, and returned to the fifth floor in which I was living, and the elevator doors opened, and there was this woman sitting there in the chair outside of the elevator. And I'd, I'd never seen her before. Now, this was a building with a lot of elderly people. So I said to her, well, hi, I'm Gavin. I said, I bet you've moved into that apartment over there. And she said, yes. <coughs> How did you know? Sort of spunky. And I said, well, I knew Margaret, you know, and I'm, she died just before I left. And so I just assumed that. So she said, well, yes, and my name is Anna. And I said to her, well, Anna, I stay in number 77, and if you have any problems or you need anything, you just come and knock on my door. And she said, well, exactly the same. You come to my door. So over the next months, we became quite friendly. I used to go over to her place for chicken soup and uh, knedlach, mat matzah balls. Mm -hmm. And uh, when I wasn't feeling well, which was quite often at that particular time, she always assured me that she was feeding me 
Jewish penicillin of the very best kind. <laughs> and so Anna and I used to walk up and down the passage together. She was 85, I was 45, and we would go up and down the passage when the snow was falling outside. It was too cold for sort of both of us to go out. And we'd just wander up and down the passage. And we're both sort of private people. And she told me about her son. She told me about her daughter. And I spoke sort of vaguely about my life. I didn't mention meditation because I thought, she hears about meditation. It's like, so we just had this great, loving, uh, simple relationship. So one day, I, I come to the elevator, the elevator doors open, and Anna steps out with Larry Rosenberg. <laughs> so I say, oh, how nice, you guys know each other. So Larry says to me, uh, well, actually, we know each other very well. And is my mother. <laughs> and she says, yes, this is my son, the Harvard professor. <laughs> so all of a sudden, you know, there were all of these, these sort of connections. So Anna and I became really good friends after that. So of course, we had a lot to talk about. And, it, you know, as it turned out, Anna was meditating every night, and I was meditating every night. <laughs> But we never told each other. You know? <laughs> so, uh, but she always said to me, she always said to me, you're my friend, you know. And she meant, you're not Larry's friend who now knows me and now you're my friend. And you're not my husband's friend, you're like my personal friend. And I, and I said I was, and, and you know, and so it was. So anyway, after a couple of years, I left the building and moved to Northampton. But Anna and I checked in every week, and if I didn't call, there was a message on my answering machine, one word, and the only message was, Anna. <laughs> she like hated the answering machine, but it's just Anna. And then I would call her and she'd say, where were you? She said, I was worried. Why didn't you call me? And he used to make me feel more guilty than my mother ever did. <laughs> but I loved her. I loved her so much. And we always spoke. And every time we spoke, there were three things she always needed to say. And until she said those three things, I knew that our conversation wasn't over. So there was no point in me even trying to end it. And the three things were, you're my best friend in the world. I love you till the end of time. And you're a mensch. Those are the three things. You're a mensch. So over the last like three or four years, Anna and I kept closely in touch o o over the years, and it was a real personal relationship. At times, I used to get a little frustrated with her because she really made me feel guilty, and it felt so awful, you know. But my love never diminished. Anyway, about a month ago. I was going down to a retreat in Connecticut and called her up and said, Anna, I'm going on retreat, I'm going to be away, and I'm not going to be able to call you for about 10 days. I just wanted to let you know, and as soon as I'm back and can, I will let you know. So she said, fine. Well, I was commuting to this retreat, but I regarded it as, as retreat time and wasn't dealing with the phone. Anyway, I got back one evening, there was a message to say that Anna had had a massive stroke, that she was in hospital. So I decided not to go back to Connecticut for a number of reasons, but most particularly for that reason. 
And I started spending time with Anna in the hospital. And she was, it, it was a major stroke. And it was so severe that they actually decided not to, to feed her any longer. So she was, she was very far back. And I would sit next to her bed and I would tell her, Anna, I'm here, it's Gavin. And I tell her that I love her and tell her that I'm extending love and hold her hand. And then I would just breathe with her. And I tell her, I'm breathing with you. I'm breathing with you. And I would spend a long time. Larry was not able to be here as much as I know he would like to have. And his sister was only there for a certain amount of time. So I actually got to spend a lot of time with Anna. The hospital was just up the road from me. So I was there a lot of time. I took her flowers out of the garden. And then always, when I was with her, every five minutes or so, I would say to her, you're my best friend in the whole world. And then I'd wait a bit, and then I'd say, I love you till the end of time. And then I'd say to her, and you're a mensch, Anna. And even on the days when she was really far back, she would communicate that she knew I was there. She would like stroke my finger a little bit. And she would, one day she was like holding my hand. Anyway, I got a phone call one day from her daughter who said to me that she was at Anna's bedside and all of a sudden Anna's eyes popped open. The first thing she said was, Gavin is my best friend in the whole world. I'm thirsty, give me a drink of water. <laughs> and then she slipped back again. You know, and she, at this point, had been transferred to the Cozy Corners nursing home in Amherst. This is Larry Rosenberg's mom a friend of mine, Deborah. So I would visit Coney Co Cozy Corners Nursing Home, which was a place for people who'd, who'd had strokes or were dealing with Alzheimer's. And I would go there, and often there were about 100, 120 people. I was the only visitor there. And I would sit with Anna, and I would do my phrases to her, tell her I loved her, tell her she was a man, she'd love her till the end of time, best friend in the world. And what would happen is all these women and men in various contractions, wheelchairs, walkers, strollers, would start congregating around the entrance, just gravitating towards the connection. So on the Saturday night, about 10 days after her stroke, I had a withering night. I didn't sleep a wink. And the next morning I got up and I thought, I'm exhausted. It's like 5 o'clock in the morning. I want to be with somebody. I don't want to be on my own. And who do you visit at 5 o'clock in the morning except your buddy, Anna Rosenberg? So off I go to Cozy Corner's nursing home while all the nurses are just like wiping the sleep out of their eyes and nothing's happening. And I breeze into, into Anna's room and sit down next to her, take down the, the supports on the side of her bed. And I had some sweet peas out of the garden. And each time I went, I said to Anna, I bought some sweet peas. They're sort of blue and a little bit sort of turquoise and pink. And um, they're really beautiful. And it's a beautiful day outside and everything. And I'm sitting there looking at her. And all of a sudden, her eyes like popped wide open, which they hadn't been at all. And she like looked at me. Well, I got such a fright. I burst into tears. I just started crying and crying and crying. Both because I hadn't slept, I was tired, I didn't want her to suffer, I didn't want her to go. All those feelings, you know, I'm sure you know well, it's like, 
just a comment, and I just cried. And Anna reached out of her bed, I don't know how she did it, she grabbed my head and pulled my head down into my lap and kept it there. And I just wept and wept and wept. And all the time I was weeping, she was saying, I love you, I love you, I love you. And this has gone on for about three quarters of an hour to an hour. I got to spend this incredible time with her. I imagine, I didn't see, but I imagine all the nurses were probably walking by and thinking, what on earth is going on in there? It's like, who's supporting who? And then I sat back and we did our usual meditation together. And and, uh, the next day, Anna died. And this... There were, there were many things surprising about this, and I have no doubt that you have your own stories, and this is also an invitation for those to come forward at some point this afternoon. But I felt so privileged to be there. People who heard about it said to me, God, what an incredible thing you did, you know? What a, a kindness that was. But it was, it was the greatest privilege and the greatest blessing. There was nowhere else I wanted to be. During those 10 days that Anna was in the hospital, I wanted to be nowhere. I wanted to be nowhere but with her. And the incredible thing that happened was that when she did go, and I went to the eulogy and the Kaddish with the family, it was like I really and truly had said goodbye to her, breath by breath, you know. And it was just a reminder to me how I can really, not in some airy-fairy, you know, hanky-panky way, in some very real way, I can breath by breath say goodbye to myself in, the, in a way that I said goodbye to Anna. So whenever I go, and hopefully it'll be in 40 years, that I will have truly said goodbye and finished my business. So, I know Larry won't mind me sharing this story. He told a beautiful story at the eulogy, which I'd like to share with you. When he was a young boy, he said, in Florida growing up, he was playing in the playground, and this old guy came up to him and sat down beside him. He said, can I sit down beside you? And Larry told me afterwards that this was a black fellow, and at that time, apparently black guys didn't sit down on the same bench as you. But he asked Larry as a young boy if he could sit down, and Larry said, of course you can. So this old man sat down, and he turned to Larry and said, you must have a really loving mother. And Larry turned to him and he said, excuse me, you know, because his mother was nowhere in sight. You know, she wasn't there, she was at home. And he said, well, how do you know? I do have a loving mother, but how do you know that? And this old man said to her, you can always tell in the eyes of a young boy or a young girl if they had a loving mother. And that was how he eulogized his mom a couple of weeks ago. That's Anna, one of the great teachers of love in my life. She was 90 years old when she died. And perhaps if we lived in a culture where we weren't so protected from death, where the ever-present reality of death 
was not something hidden behind the palace walls of Siddhartha that have become our nursing homes, our cozy corners, our hospitals, our asylums. Perhaps it wouldn't be so hard for us. Perhaps when we are shaken to the core by whatever the circumstance might be, we might not reel in quite the way that we do if we lived our life with an ever-present and loving reminder that each breath is so incredibly precious. So if I may, I'd like to introduce another round of these reflections. And these are ones that are related specifically to the body. And this time, what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask for three volunteers. And I'm going to give you each a pile of these, and if you could give each person one. Thanks. We'll try again. Fortune cookies. Here we go. But actually, I should have one too, please. The last time I was the only one who needed them. Seems like just one. Thanks. Thank you. And I'll introduce them as they're being handed out. always remembering that these reflections are not to scare the living daylights out of us. They are, as Karen said, to, to inter, intercede in the fear and give us a sense of what is simply true as a way of grounding ourselves and working with the fear of death. And so these three are about the body. The first one is, the body is fragile. <coughs> the body is fragile. And when I die, my body cannot help me. You don't have enough, my body is fragile. <laughs> well, there we go. And the last one is, my loved ones cannot help either. Once again, I'm going to invite you, if you will, to take a posture, this will probably go on for a short while, that's going to be comfortable. And I will introduce these again, and then please just use these uh, notelets as reminders if you need them. I will guide you as we did this morning. But beginning once again with the breathing. <coughs> Being aware of the changing sensations of the breath as it enters and as it leaves your body. Always remembering that the willingness to begin again and again and again is the heart of the meditation practice. One in-breath and one out-breath. A breath arising, a breath passing away.
birth, the middle, the death of the in-breath, and the birth, the middle, and the end of a brand new out-breath. Breathing together here today. Again, if you wish, you may want to breathe a little into your heart, into that great heart that we all share, the center of the chest. Allowing the heart, the body, to open with the arising and the passing away of every breath we take. Once more, I'll offer these phrases. You may wish to take them in, <coughs> allow them to rest in whatever way feels appropriate and comfortable for you. My body is so fragile. My body is fragile. Or if you wish, the human body is so fragile. Allowing the words to echo within yourself. Finding your own meaning, whether it's an image, visualization, a sense, even an experience of your body right now, sitting on the cushion, the chair. My body is so fragile. Keep breathing. if you wish, bring to mind moments when that felt so true. My body is fragile.
home bodies of grandchild. mind is wandering, you may want to repeat the phrase a little more regularly to yourself. Being creative as before, drawing from the tapestry of your life and your creative spirit, you may want to repeat the phrase a little more regularly to yourself. Being creative as before, drawing from the tapestry of your life and your creative spirit. Just being with whatever this phrase means <coughs> to you here now together. My body is fragile. Last few minutes before we move on to the next one, or include the next one.
breathing. Now bringing in the second one. When I die, my body cannot help me. My body cannot help me. Breathing. When I die, my body cannot help me. again and again is the heart of the meditation and contemplation practice. My body is so fragile. When I die, it cannot help me. Fragile. When I die, it cannot help me. 
and my loved ones cannot help me when I die either. My loved ones cannot help in the end. a sense, an image, visual, being aware of whatever feelings may arise, just being with the phrase as wholeheartedly as possible, ultimately not even my loved ones can help me. few minutes, my body is fragile, ultimately it cannot help me, neither can my loved ones help me. Breathing. Once again, this is a time for us to hear from one another. And I remind you of the blessing and the privilege of having an opportunity to hear one another's stories. It's so rare that we get to hear how others have stumbled and fallen and spread their wings and learn lessons. And I invite you again to listen that carefully that perhaps 
we needn't make the same mistakes as others that have gone before us. And perhaps we can learn through their learning of the experiences they've had. I'll do the gongs again, as we did this morning. Again, I'd like to just extend an invitation to anybody who hasn't spoken or anybody who would like to say something. Again, I would like to end this session without that invitation. like to ask if I could respond to some of the things that have been said. I've wanted to sort of step out. You must be so tired of my voice by now. <laughs> um, one thing I'm reminded of is the words somewhat, I realize, rolled off my tongue this morning when I said that it was a brave and courageous endeavor that we'd set ourselves today. And this afternoon, hearing what I've heard and in the sharing, it's clear what an immensely brave endeavor, what a brave journey we've gone on today. And you're quite right, we've gone to some places that are very tender, and places that certainly for me often feel unfathomably difficult. Places where I yearn and thirst for an answer In fact, I often feel as though my life is like running down corridors and hitting a wall every time. And wanting somehow to find that person or that circumstance that's going to have the answers and that's going to deliver me from what's really painful. And so on the one hand, you know, I'd like to... to respond from my own experience, uh, you know, as you've done some of the issues that have been brought up here. But um, I'm afraid I can't offer answers because I don't have them. I have my experiences, all of us have them from which we've shared. And if there was any way that I could reassure you and I could tell you that when your moment comes it's going to be just fine. I wish I could do that with all my heart. But it would just be another lie. And for me I've had too many of those, you know. So what I'd like to do is, you know, we've got an hour and I 
kind of feel like I'm going to throw everything up in the air and we'll just sort of unfold. But of course we're going to have some completion here. And I ask you to join me in making this as complete as possible. I think that when we come together as we've done today, the notion that we can tie up all the loose ends and go home feeling satisfied with the answer is really an impossibility. You know, perhaps we can come here and we can go home knowing that we're not alone, knowing that our struggles are the human struggles, and that our journey to understanding and love is one that we all share, and that there are others that are as deeply committed and resolved as we are to live a decent and honest and wholesome life. And perhaps that's one of the reasons why I give a lot of emphasis Perhaps I'm speaking to myself when, when I prepare this stuff to say that, you know, we're not alone, we're in community, we're joining hands and hearts together. Because in the end I really sense that that is one of the most important things. On the one hand, we have this thing, my loved ones cannot help me, you know. And for me what that means is kind of like when I'm sitting next to Anna, is that I didn't want her to suffer. I didn't want her to die. And I didn't want to see her body so frail and wasting away and that she couldn't drink and that she had to suffer the indignity of me feeding her and encouraging her. I didn't want that, you know? But all I could do is just be there loving her. That I couldn't make her body do those things. I couldn't bring her up from where she was, you know? And for me, that's what this one is about. It's about, you know, when you were talking, Doreen, um, I've had six years on you, so I guess I'm a little, little teeny bit more of a veteran with this, but, you know, I think you know a lot more than I do. But one of the things in which I have unshakable faith is that a heart that is loving and a mind that is not fighting is the greatest medicine and the greatest love that I can give myself. And if I give that to myself, I'm giving it to everybody around me. And whether I take protease inhibitors or not, whether I'm on a cocktail regimen or not, whether I eat all the health food and pop the millions of vitamins that I do, I think in the end, all of those are going to help me, and I think we have to treat these bodies lovingly. They're sacred. I mean, this is the body that hopefully is going to deliver me from suffering once and for all. God knows I need to take the very best care of it. And so I don't think that this teaching is about denying our bodies and abusing them in any way. I think it's about coming to an understanding that is true that these bodies are fragile, as we've seen, that these bodies are changing, that they are undependable, not that they're bad, but we cannot depend on them, because they're changing. Dependence means that there's something fixed that we can rely upon, and I don't believe there's anything fixed here. So it's not that we then throw it out the window, it's that we love it in the truth of what it is. And so we do the yoga, we do the vitamins, I do a million things to take care of my body. 
And now that I'm doing drugs also, I always said, I will take these vitamins, I'll do all the yoga, I'll do the meditating, so that when the moment comes that I have to take these drugs, that my body will be as strong as possible to deal with whatever the side effects might be. And that I'm blessed in that when I started taking the drugs, and I have friends here that have been through this tortuous, years-long decision, it's not an easy decision, to commit yourself to this sort of regimen, that when I was eventually able to do it, I was able to do it with love. And that if I pop those pills, 27 of them a day, choreographed day and night, when I do that, I do them with such love, most of the time. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.